You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, When Ancient Meets Current, The Seven Churches in Revelation. For more sermons and resources, visit firstfamily.church. Well, this is our final week in our series, When Ancient Meets Current. I'm going to take a little longer time this morning in the introduction because I think it will be fitting to help you understand how we're going to close this out. But one question has been kind of rumbling in my mind for a number of weeks, as we've talked through each of the seven letters, i.e. the seven churches that Jesus spoke to, one question, why did he write to them? Now often in text, you don't get answers to why questions explicitly. Um, You have to deduce those things, you have to kind of piece things together, chapter to chapter, look in the context. Because why questions are, aren't always easily or quickly answered. doesn't mean the answer is wrong eventually, but sometimes it's hard to, to find it because it just doesn't state it clearly. Sometimes it does, but often it doesn't. And so I kept thinking, why the letters? We know what he says. We know who he's saying it to, but, but why this format? And, and, and why the vision in chapter 1? Why then the particular aspects of that vision in chapters 2 and 3 to each letter? What's, why did he do it this way, you know? I think the answer that I'm most comfortable with, and I think I can support this contextually as well as textually, is this. Jesus wanted to make sure that they had a clear and correct view of him. I think that's why he wrote to the churches. In fact, let me just repeat what I said a minute ago. I think if you look at chapter 1 of Revelation, this rather long, full description of Jesus... And then you notice that in each of the next seven letters across two chapters, he uses part of who he is to begin the letter and part of who he is to end the letter. You begin to see that in chapter 1 fully and then in each of the letters of 2 and 3, the central figure really is Jesus Christ. It's not the church. It's not her works, whether good or bad. It's not her compliments or commendations or her criticisms or her rebukes. The, The real central figure is Jesus in, the, in all the first three chapters. And so I, I just got to processing all this, and I thought, here's why he wrote these letters. Because he knew that they needed to see him correctly to gain a clear vision of who he actually and really was and is. Because that's the key component to a church's spiritual, continued health and lasting impact. Within these seven letters, you know, there's this phrase that comes up often that if you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. I'll take away your power. There's something about uh, these letters that Christ is saying, unless you repent and come back to me as your central source, as the, as the central reason, the figure, the, the, the focus of it all, you're going to die out. And so this morning, I give you the take-home truth up front. This is it. We're going to leave it up for a little bit so you can write it down because I usually ask you to say it with me and then you don't get to write it and then later you're like, hey, I didn't get that, you know. But here it is. This is what we're going to see this morning from start to finish. It's why he wrote the letters. Say it with me, ready? Because seeing Christ correctly, gaining a clear vision of who Jesus is, is the key component to a church's continued spiritual help and lasting impact. We're going to see that from start to finish this morning. 
as we look more in depth at this full description of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Now before I get there, I want to address something that I say in the take-home truth. Seeing Christ correctly would by implication mean that we could see him how? Incorrectly. And perhaps an incorrect view is to see the church as... Um, let me say it like this. Perhaps an incorrect view is to think that there are several things central and essential to the church. When actually that's not true. There is one essential central thing necessary for the church, and it's a who, it's Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that certain things aren't helpful. And this is where I think sometimes we get off. We think that what's helpful should move up to central. That becomes an incorrect view of who Jesus is and his church, who the foundation of it is, and so forth. Let me just kind of walk you a few things that are actually positive. They're very helpful to our church, all right? But they're not central. For instance, today is the beginning of Lighthouse signups, and um, you know that that's a big thing we do around here, small groups. Uh, we encourage you every year to sign up, but small groups aren't central to our church. Are they helpful? Yes. In fact, we ask for 100% involvement in our small groups without apology. It's where the family part of First Family is felt. If you're not in a small group, you're probably at some point just going to feel like you're watching church. You might enjoy it. You might think, yeah, that's, that's, I, that's a good situation, but you're, you're not really going to feel like you're intimately connected, especially when difficult things happen, until you're in one of our lighthouses, we call our small groups. Are they helpful? Yes. Are they central? No. I'll show you why in a minute. And I'll show some pictures behind me here that just kind of prompt you with some of these ideas. So lighthouse sign-up start today. By the way, you can do it online. Some of you may even do it in this auditorium while I'm preaching. Do you know that? You may go on there and just sign up. That'd be awesome. No problem. You can multitask here. But we have someone or at least one or two people down in the cafe area. You'll see the sign. Live, eyeball to eyeball, face to face people. to say, hey, which, which group's good for me? They'll talk you through them. They'll show you different things happening. They'll explain the groups to you. Cars is going to kind of be roaming as well in the, in the gym, that no man's land area, that big uh, wide open space. Um, she helps with newcomers, and so if you're kind of new, Cars, Keith, those guys will be down there. They'll help you with that. There's no reason you can't start today getting connected to something that's very helpful. But make no mistake, it's not central. Now, there's also other things that are helpful as well. Like, for instance, in a week from Wednesday is our parking lot party. It's coming up. That will be helpful to our church, not only for lighthouses, but there's women's ministries, the kids' ministries. These are things, programs we call them, ministries. They're helpful. The tonight's uh, unraveling the end times. So it's a roundtable discussion. The emails have already been great between the panelists. I'm telling you, I saw some yesterday. It's going to be really fun tonight. Uh, that's, gonna, that's helpful. So our fall kickoff on a Wednesday parking lot party. There'll be some inflatables. The community's invited. We'll have food for everybody. It's helpful. Tonight's roundtable is helpful. Sign-ups for Lighthouse helpful. But are they central? No. I'll tell you why in a minute. Let's talk about money. Because often folks think, man, we, could, we couldn't make without money. But finances aren't central to the church. They're helpful. In fact, they're so helpful that I want to thank you for something you've done and haven't even probably realized it. So behind me is uh, a simple spreadsheet that some guys in the office gave me uh, a few weeks ago. 
Say, Todd, we're, we're getting there. Let's just keep plotting. And we talk to our staff about the power of plotting along often. As you know, we've set a set of goal that by 2018, we want to have $100,000 extra for mobilization, which would be funds we'd use for things outside of our church. It wouldn't go to the building. It wouldn't go to our ministries here. It's things such as national church planting, um, missionaries in least access areas. We've got a number in the pipeline. It may be uh, things related to um, outside of our church. It could be international, national, domestic. But those are called mobilizing funds. Trips we'll take, things we'll do that will get us out there. We set aside a goal to double those funds. An extra $100,000. That meant in two years we're going to have to begin to see some um, extra giving. And we're going to watch our budget. We're going to try to hold our line in some areas too. They showed me that in the second quarter, we actually increased our giving as a church on a weekly basis by $1,100. Now watch this. If we just simply do that on a quarterly basis, and I, I'm not sure if we have to do it every quarter, but if we do that three more times before the end of 2017, we'll have an extra $4,400 per week, which equals an extra $100,000 by 2018. Do you know that? It shows you can eat an elephant a bite at a time, right? So if you've been attending and you're not giving yet, man, just embrace the discipline of giving and, and investing in God's kingdom. I can assure you that here our heart is for generosity and sacrificial giving on a church-wide level to help. And, and doubling those funds, increasing by $100,000, I think it's a, it's a goal that I think we should embrace and say, wow, that's not just for us here. This is for things outside of our church. And I'm watching, I'm watching you guys do this. Thank you very much. Thank you. But guess what? As pleased as I am and the elders and as happy as I am for you and for us, this is not central. We could, we could quadruple it. it. It may not matter if God's not in it, amen? Okay, so, so programs, ministries, finances, they're helpful, they're good, we're not knocking them, but they can lead to an incorrect view if we think of them as central instead of helpful. I think sometimes... Um, we think that, that people are central. Do you know that? Like you. Or like the staff. Let's just be even more frank. Like pastors. Man, they're, they're, they're central. No, they're not. The church is not a pastor's fan club. The church is the body of Christ. And your staff is important, but not irreplaceable. By the way, this membership is important but not what? So even people, they're helpful, but they're not what? They're not central. Finances, facilities, processes, uh, ministries, programs. We're taking a survey today, in fact. This is one of those things that I think is helpful. It's a survey that we're asking you to take about this past series this summer that ends today in fact it's online the uh, link will be on our Facebook page probably just momentarily there are, there are hard copies on this brown counter out here there's only 200 if you need more we'll make some more between services so feel, feel free to take it and I want to just be very transparent with you I want every single person to take the survey it's, it's some things the elders are curious about how you kind of 
took the last eight weeks? How did things settle with you? How did you like some of the creeds? How did you like the songs? How did you like the Q&A? What do you think about this aspect or that aspect? I'm kind of putting myself under the microscope and saying, I want to know what you thought about the last series. So it's called a series survey. Now, those of you who liked it will take it. I know that. I'm asking for those who have different thoughts and weren't real fond of it to take the survey. Your feedback is vital to me, is to, to us. You're not going to offend me. There's no names required. But it's good to kind of gauge the church. And so to, starting today, only through Wednesday at midnight, the survey is available hard copy or on our Facebook page. It may be the website. I think you're getting a letter today that will have a link to it as well. We're doing all we can to make sure we say to you, hey, we want to hear from you on this. What do you think about the last eight weeks? Take the survey and let us know. And be honest. I know you'll be kind. I'm not worried about that. Just be honest and tell us your thought. Lean in with some input. Because that's helpful. But guess what? It's not what? Central. So programs, processes, finances, facilities, people. When they are viewed as central and not helpful, then we get an incorrect view of what's really going on at church. Because the truth is, there's only one central thing at church. It is the person of Christ. Why do I say that? Because we could survive without every other thing. You know that? We could. We could survive without our small groups. We could survive without money. You can survive without a large crowd. You can survive without your staff. You can survive without a survey. You can, you can survive. Would it be great, enjoyable, tremendous? Maybe not. But would it exist? Yes. Why? Because Christ would be there. You and I as a church cannot even survive without Christ. So there is actually only one central thing to the church. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think that's exactly why John wrote Three chapters describing Jesus, two of them in letters to churches. So they would see clearly. It's not really about where you live or how well you're doing, how poorly you're doing. It's not about your works or your coldness or your hotness. I want you to see Jesus in all of his correct glory and beauty so that you make him central. See him as, as, as necessary. Can we do the same thing today? Can we take a look at this description? So that we don't get our eyes on things that are helpful and think they're actually central. Let's do that. Chapter 1 of Revelation. Let's just read through what I think is, first of all, John's identification of Jesus in verses 4 through about 8. And by the way, it's an exclusive identification. I'll show you how in a minute. It, it identifies Christ as the only one. And then verses 9 through about 20, we're going to see a beautiful description of him. So identifying Christ early and then describing him later in the passage. Let's read this together. When we're done, I'll try to take a few questions before we close out today, all right? So if you have some, feel free to text them in as I'm reading through these verses. And we're looking at his identification and then his description. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. I think that's speaking of the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's speaking of the Holy Spirit. I think the number seven there is symbolic of his perfect power, the full expression of God, uh, the full person of God in the Holy Spirit. 
And then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, that's an Old Testament reference to his messianic identity, the firstborn of the dead, the vindication of Christ after the resurrection, and the ruler of kings on the earth, I think, and a mention of his ascension. Now what you have here is really a, a Trinitarian reference, don't you? Here's John writing and bringing grace and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In this case, they're in this order, though. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. Why? Most of the time, they're not in that order. I think it's because he talks about the throne, the one who uh, is sitting on there, who is, who is and who was and is to come, and before his throne, seven spirits. In the heavenly temple, this is kind of the order of, I won't use the word furniture, that's not the best word, but it's the throne, and then there's an altar, kind of like the temple that mimics it on the earth. And so I think what the the writer's saying is this, uh, God the Father, and before him is this altar of of worship and incense where the spirits, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is, is present and active, and then there's the Son who brings the sacrifice to the altar. So perhaps that's the reason he's using this order. Either way, he makes a very strong Trinitarian reference here. John brings greetings from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Then he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom. He's now speaking of this one who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth. He's, He's loved us and he's freed us. And then it says he's made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. That's why this is a reference to God the Son's activity because the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to love us and free us and make us a kingdom was the work he did unto his God. Which is why God gives to the Son glory and dominion forever and ever. Yes, they share in that glory, but God the Father actually hands the keys of the kingdom to Jesus Christ. So there's this perfect Trinitarian relationship happening here. Notice something here. It says that Jesus loved us, he has freed us, and he has made us a kingdom. What he's speaking of here is really his messianic activity. Now that's important because there's some Jewish phrases in here. This idea of being made a kingdom, being made priest to God. So Christ has come and he's fulfilled everything that was expected of earthly priests, but he's done it not imperfectly, but perfectly. He's come from God because he is God and he does what only God can do and he makes men right with God. This is the one verse 7 says, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So who is the one that that is saying, John, write these letters? It can only be one person. It's the one that was promised of old in the Old Testament who came as God in the flesh, did the work only God could do, redeemed sinners, and is now promising to return. This is the only one he's describing here, and it's Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of messianic identity going on here. There's a lot of messianic activity happening here. All of that is to show clearly this must be Jesus. So again, it it points to something I need you to embrace, okay? Just listen very carefully. The creeds that you say, the beliefs that you hold, 
the doctrine that you stand on is an exclusive doctrine. Pluralism and Christianity do not mix. It doesn't mean you have to be impolite. It doesn't mean you have to be unkind. But you can't waver. There aren't multiple gods. There's not multiple saviors. I mean, I can't be clear enough. There's one that God promised. He brought him forth from the beginning of time, through the loins of Abraham, we'll call it, the line of Christ, the throne of David. He lived his life, showed to be God because he was God, died for us, did what only God could do and redeemed us from our sins, rose from the dead, vindicating he was God, power over death and hell, and he's coming again. There's only one person about whom that can be said. It's Jesus Christ, and only Jesus saves. That make sense? I just can't be more clear with you. That is what's at stake in our culture. And our culture will be okay with you if you can put that on the same level with every other religion. Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith. Yeah, they're all equal avenues. No, I completely disagree. There is one way to God. It's the exclusive second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Now that's his identification. John now says that this one is the Alpha, the Omega. Again, he repeats in verse 8. He says he is uh, he, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, it's just this, this Trinitarian uh, comment, so to speak, that Jesus is God, his divinity, his deity. He then says next that John, he was in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. In other words, these things were probably on account of Jesus. And we can say more about that tonight, by the way. He kind of repeats this again. He says he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He didn't hear a trumpet. He heard a voice, but it sounded, it had the effect of a trumpet call, okay? And here's what the voice said. Write what you see in a book and send it to seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We went through that in seven weeks. Why write these letters? Why have this vision on the front end of this command and then on the back end of this command and then in the middle of all the letters? I think it's because he wanted to make sure the churches knew exactly how to see himself correctly. So he says, John, write these letters. John turns and sees the voice that was speaking to him, and he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now here he begins to describe Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the messianic fulfillment of all of God's promises, the one who did what only the Son of God could do. He's going to describe him now. And he's going to describe him while he's in the middle of these seven lampstands. He says he is, first of all, like a son of man. That speaks to his humble humanity. You might call it his incarnation, his willingness to become one of us. He says he was clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. More than likely, it speaks to his intercessory priestliness. This is some type of priestly garments. So he's saying Jesus stands in for us. He is one of us, and yet he is, in essence, God. 
That's the first part of the description. Yet he is one of us, and yet he stands in for us to God. Verse 14 says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, this is beginning to describe the same thing that Daniel describes in chapter 7. Okay? You ought to put a mark in your Bible to Daniel 7, because what happens in Daniel 7 is, now listen very carefully to me, listen very carefully, don't lose me. In Daniel 7, Daniel is seeing the Ancient of Days take the throne. It's God the Father. And in that chapter, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, calls to the Son of Man to come to him, and he gives the kingdoms, the dominion of the earth, ruler over all the nations, to the Son. But what does he do here? Here, John says he sees the Son of Man with the white hair. He's equating the Son of Man with the Ancient of Days. What is he saying? Again, he's saying, this Son of Man, this Jesus, this Christ, is God. Without, with, with great certainty. He's equating what he's seeing now with Daniel 7. So the hairs of his head, are, they were white like white wool like snow. Speaking of his eternality, his divinity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Here, this kind of penetrating purity. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Okay, so he's in the middle of seven lampstands. In his right hand, as a signal of authority, he's holding seven stars. He says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Can you start seeing this vision? This is not the, the Jesus with the halo looking like, the, you know, like he's afraid to ask you a question. <laughs> You've seen those portraits, haven't you? Yeah, I don't know where they get that from. This picture is not you know, the guy that seems timid and afraid. This is the one who from eternity past has humbled himself under the will of his Father to accomplish redemption for his Father and to love us and free us and make us priests. So he was crucified, he died, he rose again, he ascended, he's taken the throne, he now rules, and he's standing among those churches, those ones he bought with his blood, and he's got a sword out of his mouth, his eyes are like fire, and his feet are like bronze, because he is in charge, he's authoritative, he is supreme. He's not asking for permission, church. (laughs) This is no timid, afraid Jesus. This is the fully sovereign Lord of Lords and King of Kings. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. I think these last couple of verses really speak to his purity, his authority. When John saw this in verse 17, he fell at his feet and as though he were dead, but Jesus laid his right hand on him. This idea of the right hand speaks of authority. And he says, do not fear. I am the first and the last. I mean, Jesus Christ is A, he is Z, and he's everything in between. Amen? Now, let me show you a literary way he proves this. I think this is kind of unique. I don't know if it's intended, but I just kind of saw this over the last few weeks. Have you noticed that in each of the letters, Jesus begins with something about himself, and he ends with something about himself. It says to me, he's the first and the last. So even in a literary way, Jesus makes sure that every church knows in that letter, I am central to everything you're doing. and to every, I'm in the middle of all this. I know your works. I'm walking among you. I'm in the lampstands. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha, the omega. I'm the living one. 
So if he's living, but yet he claims to have died for us, he says here, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So he is alive forevermore, which means he can then say, I have the keys of death in Hades. If you came, gave your life as a sacrifice, died, and then was, were raised by the Father as a vindication of who you were and satisfaction of the sacrifice, you would then own the keys to death because you overcame it. And no one has ever done that. There's only one person in history who's come as God, did the work only God could do, and was raised by God, and then ascended to be with God. It's Jesus Christ. So guess what? He has the right to the keys of death and Hades. In other words, he controls the destinies of people. This is the vision of Jesus as one completely in charge, totally supreme, absolutely authoritative, undeniably victorious. So these seven or eight descriptions described for us, they show for us a beautiful picture, a very motivating picture of our Lord and Savior. And then he says in verse 19, right therefore, now notice that, that's such a key word. In other words, in light of all that you've seen, John, I want you to write this to the churches. So he didn't say, John, write a suggestion list to all the churches, give my to-dos to the churches, write a way to stay alive in the culture of the church. He said, John, you've seen me. Now tell the church what you've seen. Give them a correct view of who I am. And he does that in every single letter, specifically in each letter in certain ways to apply to his church. But if you add it all up and compare it to chapter 1, you see this full vision of who Jesus is. Why do you write this? Because he knows that a correct view of who he is is central to the church's survival and health. In fact, this is why he says in verse 20, uh, you write these things, the ones, write what you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. I believe, by the way, that the phrase, the things that you have seen, is kind of the umbrella phrase. We'll say more about this tonight. And that... It's described by things that are and things that will take place after this. Some see this as three divisions. You're to write three things. What you've seen, what is, and what will take place. And that could be a legitimate view, by the way. This is not something that we're going to uh, divide over. I see it as, a, as one command. Write what you've seen, this vision, and it contains things that are and things that will be. Either way... It contains a mystery, and so he explains it. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. And by the way, why does he only explain this part of the mystery? There are a lot of things in this vision that you're like, man, I don't get that. Could you agree with that? You should. I don't get all of it either. You don't either. We're like, man, this is a pretty intriguing, uh, astounding vision. But he takes time to explain just one aspect here. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, that's the leaders of the churches, He would call them angels. We've explained that in week one, so I won't go back to that. And then the seven golden lampstands where he saw Christ in the midst of those. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He makes a point to say, I'm being everything that I am right in the middle of all the churches. Now watch this church. I know it's been kind of textual for a minute, but watch me. That's good for us. I'm not backing away from that. But watch this. Because this has a lot of Daniel 7 in it, if you go back and read that part of Daniel 7, you'll see that he is these very things, but there he's being it for the nations. The Ancient of Days hands the dominion of the kingdom to the Son of Man, and he rules and judges with 
purity and authenticity and absolute authority over all the nations. But here, he says, by the way, it's the same one. It's God the Son, but I'm doing that same work now in the midst of the churches. So yes, is he king over all the earth? Yes, but guess what? He is king over every church as well. And Jesus Christ, in all of his exclusive identity and beautiful description, watch this, he is the only central element, person, figure in this church. Are there other helpful things? Say it with me. But are they central? No, a thousand times no. Because you could survive without every one of those helpful things. But we can never just survive without the exclusive, beautiful Son of God. That's why you sing, Lord, I need you. We don't sing, Lighthouse, oh, I need you. We don't sing that. There's not any hymns to pastors except in Mormonism. That's true. But in Christianity, there's, there's no hymns to pastors. We don't, sing, we, don't, we don't talk about the dollar bill as being our, our savior. What we sing and say and believe and voice and rally around is the only one central to the life of this church. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And church, I hope in this series you have understood it, it, it's been interesting to see history to watch the cities and to read their letters and to understand how we can relate and, and follow suit in the good and avoid the bad that's been helpful but the letters weren't written just so we can learn about history they were written so we could see Jesus in all of his beauty accurately correctly so that we stay healthy for the long term and that's what it will take it will take a clear an accurate and correct view of who Jesus is. And we have it in Revelation 1. He's exclusively, eternally, the Son of God. He's beautifully the judge of the earth. He's authoritatively the ruler of the church. This is Jesus. Now, let me share with you one way that I think this impacts us, and then I'll take a question or two. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, and there's a a lot of Jewish language in here. It comes out of Daniel 7, so this is why I think this is a fitting understanding. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people found these elements within three roles, although they found them imperfectly. They always had a prophet and a priest and a king. A prophet would speak for God to them, such as Samuel, Elijah, A priest would stand in to God for them, such as Joshua or Moses. And the king would rule over them, such as David or Solomon. But all of those pointed to the ultimate Joshua, the ultimate David, the ultimate um, Elijah. Because he would come, this one, Christ, who was and is and is to come, he would come and perfectly fulfill Everything God has for his people. Everything. So all that God had promised for his people would be fulfilled in Christ. 
So he is our prophet, priest, and king. We don't need three. We have one. Amen? It's Jesus, and he fulfills every single role perfectly. There's no error. There's no blemish. Jesus does everything perfect. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20, I'm not sure if the verse is in there or not, but I, this is one of my favorite verses. It's becoming that way at least. It says that every promise of God finds its yes in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? So as, as, they, as, as the people of old kept thinking, when's the real king? When's the real prophet? When's the real priest? When's the ultimate one finally coming who will fulfill all that God said? John sees him. And every role that a priest would play, that a, that a prophet would play, that a king would play, Jesus fulfilled those perfectly. And God was satisfied and raised him from the dead and said, this is now King of kings and Lord of lords. Here's the head of my church. See him correctly. All of God's promises, they find their yes in Jesus. And so we utter our amen to God through him. That's what the church does. It's not through small groups <laughs> or dollar bills or staff, or processes, or surveys. It's not through sign-ups, or programs, or big events. Are those helpful? But are they central? No, only Jesus is, because all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Him, and it's through Him then that we say, Amen to God for Jesus. Are there a couple of questions perhaps that have been texted in? I'm looking back. There's not any questions. Okay. Then let me just as we close show you why I think this matters. Because it's not just for your head. Like I can tell a lot of amens this morning. I think you were looking at your Bibles, and that's good. I love that about love teaching you guys. You're real thirsty people. But I don't want you leaving with like, man, I know more. Because knowledge puffs up. And that's not a good thing. So so why do we see this vision of Jesus so clearly? Why do we believe that these letters were written so that we would see him correctly? Because a correct view of Jesus informs and empowers every next right step. Listen very carefully. A correct view of Jesus informs and empowers every next right step. You see, the most common questions I receive as a pastor are not, hey, Todd, what do I believe about this? They're not that. I wish they were. They're usually this, and and I'm not meant to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just being me with you. They're this. Hey, what do I do? Now, granted, that's a human response. I've said the same thing as you have. It's natural in one to some degree. But what if I told you that all of your to-do answers really should flow out of what you believe statements? And that the more you see Jesus correctly, the more you will know what to do. For instance, a husband wonders, man, how do I deal with my wife? It could be on a spectrum. Maybe she's hurting and you're new in town and she's lonely. Maybe just had a baby and she's overwhelmed with this new thing called motherhood. Or maybe she's been hurt by some friends for a long time. And she's, but either way, you have this situation. You're like, man, I'm not sure how to deal with my wife. Or maybe she's been real obstinate to you. She's hard to live with. The kind Solomon talks about, you know, like a, a constant dripping of rain on the forehead, you know. 
Like, what do I do? What, what, would, what did Christ say? That men should love their wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Oh, okay. So that kind of love will make a difference? I think so. Now your to-dos may get very specific and you've got to figure those out in one sense. But that really is what men should do because that's what Christ did. That's, when we see Christ in all of his beautiful sacrifice on the cross, it says to every husband in this room, love your wife that way. And cross isn't spelled C-O-U-C-H. Let's take some parents with a straying child, a wayward child. And you're ready to take your hands off that thing. You want to be done with it. But you see Jesus among the churches. You see him disciplining and rebuking and loving. And, and so because you see how Jesus acts to his children, you, you follow suit. Again, you see what Jesus does. You see who he is. Loving Firm, consistent, a fearful church, afraid to stand for truth. But they see that Christ is actually victorious. He's risen from the dead. He has the keys to death in Hades. And so you, you lose your fear. You retain your politeness, but your, your spine strengthens and you... Stand for truth. You don't buckle or waver. You don't bend. A strangling sexual sin has someone just at the, you know, by the throat. But because you see Jesus in all of his purity, eyes like fire, you realize that, wow, he's... The treasure I have in Jesus is way more than this sexual sin that I'm holding on to. Whether it's a wrong relationship, a wrong image on a computer, a wrong subscription. You're like, I, I can't forsake the treasure I have in Jesus for something that's just temporary and, and condemning. And, and because you know Christ's eyes penetrate that. He sees us, he knows us, he's among us. We know what to do. Once we know what we really believe and how we see Jesus, then we'll know what to do. These are just some simple examples about why I believe that seeing Christ correctly informs and empowers your next step. So before you think about, oh man, here's my dilemma today, I want you to say, here's my Savior today. So all those things that we earlier, we said, Lord, I need you. You remember that, that place we came to in prayer? Think about all the ways that Christ is described here. He meets that need. He does. The things you're called to today, the areas you'll be tasked with, Christ's character will inform and empower you to meet that need and, and fulfill that task. He will. This is why I think... He asked Peter the most important question. When Peter was talking about what other people say, who, who other people say he is, you know? He said, Peter, who do you say that I am? 
He didn't ask Peter, hey, you ready for Pentecost? Man, it's going to be a big crowd that day. You got plan B ready? You got extra water? I mean, for the baptism and for the people to drink? I mean, 3,000, Peter, that's a bunch. Flames of, you know, like tongues of fire look like on people's heads. There'll be lots of languages. You've been over to get your Rosetta Stone ready. You got that, Peter? You ready to go, buddy? I mean, he didn't look for his contingency plans. He didn't talk about the what ifs. He didn't say, he said, Peter, who do you say I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And knowing who Jesus was informed and empowered Peter, I think, for every step of that unpredictable journey. Same thing with Thomas. Remember Thomas? Doubted. Not until I see it, well, Christ shows up and shows him. And what did Thomas say? He didn't say, oh, I'll get to work. Oh, now I know what to do. He said this. He said, my Lord and my God. And what all of us need is not a a bigger to-do list or a stronger checklist. What all of us need is a more accurate, correct, clear vision of Jesus. And when that's in place, and I think John gives it to us, guess what? That will inform and empower every other thing you need to do. So let's get the foundation right, can we? Why did he write the letters? To give the churches a clear and correct view. We're in that group symbolically, so to speak, these churches. And can we agree, man, Jesus, we want to see you exactly as you are. In all of your exclusive identity and beautifully described, we want to see you. So what do you say we do that this morning? In prayer and in song communion, let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Let's pray, shall we, church?